You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I am Danny Anderson, uh, Assistant Professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I am sitting in once again for the uh, absent and very busy David Grubbs. Uh, joining me today are Nathan Gilmore, Assistant Professor of English at Emanuel College. Nathan, how are you today? I am doing all right. I'm actually, I uh, got that promotion, so I'm an Associate Professor. Holy cow. Excuse me. Um <laughs> It's hard to be in the presence of greatness, isn't it? (laughs) Congratulations. Associate greatness. Does that mean I have to listen to you now? Um, There you go. um, And uh, joining us as usual is Michael Farmer, who is, I think, still assistant professor of English at uh, uh, Crown College in St. Ponifacius, uh, Minnesota. How are you doing, Michael? Uh, Pretty good. Technical mishaps notwithstanding this morning. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Uh, some of those are probably my fault. So, um, well, today we're talking about, uh, uh, well, this is episode 154, and today we're talking about uh, the Kenneth Burke essay, Terministic Screens. Um, this is a, an essay of his uh, about rhetoric and its many uses. So uh, just to begin with Nathan. Yes. Uh, Burke's work is somewhat idiosyncratic, uh, yet enormously. You can say that again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and yet enormously influential. Can you give us a, just a brief sketch of his ideas and influence, and then situate this essay in that scope? Sure thing, Danny. The way that I like to introduce Kenneth, Kenneth Burke is he is someone who is really hitting the peak of his intellectual career as World War II, World War II is going on. And the reason this is important is because he realizes that if you just had a few million angry Englishmen and a few million angry Germans and they just ran at each other with knives, you might have tens of thousands of people dead. But instead, what you get with World War II is a highly organized, perhaps the most coordinated human activity in history dedicated to killing other people. And for Burke, who has a very high view of the human being as the symbol-using animal, and that's one of his uh, sort of catchphrases, uh, it is just horrific that the height of human achievement is the ability to kill each other more efficiently. So he goes about his intellectual career taking a look at the way that people can convince each other to do things, whether they be good things like writing epics or constructing cities or whether they be bad things like aerial bombing. Uh, and so he's very, very interested in the traditional liberal arts, in grammar, in logic, in rhetoric. But he goes at it from the idea not that language is first and foremost something that communicates meaning, but rather language is first and foremost something that does something. And he certainly harks back to Plato's Gorgias in this respect. He regards rhetoric as the leading of the soul, he certainly harks back to, you know, really 
Athenian culture in general in which rhetoric really is the great political power. Now, as far as, you know, his influence, people who've listened to this podcast know uh, the name uh, Richard Weaver, and Richard Weaver is someone who's very, very influenced by Burke, but really the modern field of rhetorical studies gets its sort of jump start there in the mid-20th century from the work of Kenneth Burke. I mean, you know, whether a person is a Richard Weaver person like I am or an anti-Weaver like a lot of folks in rhetoric are, everyone will basically say that the work of 20th and 21st century rhetorical studies really begins with Kenneth Burke and then branches out from there. So very influential. Uh, His central ideas, real quickly, uh, have to do with what he calls dramatism. So every act and every thought has five elements that you will find in dramatic literature. It will have an agent, someone or something doing something, an act, something that is done, an agency, which is the instrument or the power by which they do it, a scene, the context that makes it intelligible, and then the purpose, uh, which is you know the end for which they do it. And what Burke says is that if you look at the history of human thought, and I mean, he ranges all over scientific writing, philosophical writing, literary writing, he's all over the place, you will find that variations on those five variables are going to be behind a lot of the big differences between philosophical systems, political systems, so on and so forth. And one of his famous dicta, before I sort of lateral it to Michael to see if he's got anything to add, is that a new thought happens when what used to be synonyms become antonyms, or when what used to be antonyms become synonyms. And so, really, I mean, he is a historian of thought, first and foremost, but he gives us a very nice method for reading the history of ideas that I think uh, is rightly influential in the Academy. Michael, is there anything I left out there? Yeah, can you give me an example of synonyms becoming antonyms or vice versa i can't quite picture that oh sure 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 so i mean you know he says for instance you know the great revolution that christian theology brings is that you know god and humanity used to be antonyms whatever god is it's not human whatever human is it's not god and you know christological doctrine says that uh there is a being that is both god and human and that one being tells us what a god is and also what a human is so these are metaphysical synonyms and antonyms rather than linguistic. Well, no, that yeah, that that one example I gave is yeah, but I mean, just try, just trying to think here. I mean, um, and I mean, obviously he predates Foucault, but I mean, just going to you know Foucault's notion that you know if you have enough freedom within a society, it actually becomes a kind of bondage because of the weight of expectation. Mm. And well, Hegel says something similar, right? In, uh, oh yeah, 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 absolute yeah. freedom and terror. That, that right, right. Right, or, you know, uh, humanity and brute animals in Darwin used to be antonyms, then they become synonyms, so on and so forth. Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, I I was thinking while you were talking about J.L. Austin, have you you connected Burke with Austin? You know, it's been a lot of years since I've read Austin, so why don't you take a run at that? Oh, man, I've read very little. I'm not sure I can do it. (laughs) But Austin is very interested in... 
language that's not descriptive language uh-huh. that I, I can't remember if he actually uses the word performative, but I think but, he does. Yeah. I think he yeah does. I believe he does. I believe he coins that phrase. So, so a sentence like, I promise you I'll uh, go to the store. Going to the store is always my example. When I come up with a sentence, I don't know what that says about <laughs> me. I, I'm a capitalist dog. He, he says, he says, uh, I promise you I'll go to the store is a completely different kind of sentence than the store is on the corner. And, and he, Austin's point is that, that that analytic philosophers have ignored that distinction up till his time. Right, right. And and Burke would go a step further than that, I think, and say the store is on the corner, uh, sets up a, or I guess assumes, uh, you know, lays down as common ground the assumption that the world has corners in it. So in other words, I mean, even that, something as mundane as the store is on the corner uh, is a rhetorical act affirming the notion of a world that has corners in it. So all language is performative. Precisely, precisely. I mean, yeah, I mean, Richard Weaver's, you know, language is sermonic title is very much a Burkean thought. Which I, yeah, I wrote sermonic somewhere. I don't have my annotated version of this essay in front of me, but I, I know <laughs> I wrote sermonic somewhere in the uh, in the margins. So. Very good. Yeah, I think Austin's book is actually called How to Do Things with Words, right? Uh, and so it's uh, very much about language having an active role in, in the world and not just something mm-hmm. that we use to describe things that are settled, but they actually uh, sort of create the thing um, in, in enunciating it. Um, which I guess leads me, Michael, to the, uh, to the beginning of this uh, essay where he does sort of talk a little bit about dramatism and its uh and its antithesis uh the first thing he does to us in this essay <laughs> is to, dis- <laughs> is to uh, distinguish uh dramatism from what he calls scientific views of language michael uh what does he mean uh by that distinguish uh by that distinction and uh how does how do they introduce the concept of deterministic screen and are they related to other ways that people have talked about language um, the best I can tell, and I always have trouble with linguistic stuff. It's not not really my bag. Um, the the best I can tell is that that scientist the scientific view of language is I think what a post structuralist would call a naive view of language. That its primary function is to describe and name, and it does so mm-hmm. rather uncomplicatedly. Um, or it so, should. Yeah. Right. So so. It's a view of language that fails to take into account, say, uh, uh, Saussure's arbitrary relationship between the sign and the signifier, right? Saussure says uh, the word salt – I'm looking at a salt shaker on my kitchen table. (laughs) Uh, The the word salt has no intrinsic relationship with the the substance that sits inside my salt shaker. It's it's a it's a relationship built entirely on custom. I, I suppose a scientific view of language could take that into account. It, it, but reading Burke the way I read him, and I'd never read him before, really, not as an adult. Um, he 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 seems to he seems to be suggesting that the the scientific view of language doesn't take that arbitrariness into account that that language names and describes or he says the power of language to define and describe may be viewed as derivative and its essential function may be treated as attitudinal attitudinal or hortatory uh that that would be saying things like uh, i don't feel well today or i'm angry at you and and probably depending on what sort of analytic philosophy you're reading um that action is ethically wrong would be ad- attitudinal or hortatory rather than uh 
naming or describing, but for the most part, the scientific view views language as naming and describing things. The dramatistic view is the sort of performativity we've been talking about. And, and um, these are not two views that that are directly opposed to each other exactly. He, he seems to leave open the space for them to coexist, but he is certainly mm-hmm. viewing the world uh, through this dramatistic lens. This leads him to terministic screens because a terministic screen is a is a group of uh, words, gr- group of words and also like philosophical commitments that allow you to see the world in a certain way. And what he points out is every time you use a group of words and philosophical concepts to view the world in a certain way, you are um, by very definition not viewing it in a bunch of other ways. So that's the sense in which it's a screen. It focuses your vision by blocking two sides of it. And, And it's not that that's bad. It's just that that is how that is how uh, language and philosophical concepts work. When you when you look at the world through them, there's things you almost literally can't see. You you can you can mm. only see them. He he his metaphor is um, photographs with color plates put over them, uh, color screens, I guess, put over them. If you if you look at the same object through different um, colors, you'll see things in each one that you didn't see before because the different colors bring out different. Uh, different aspects of the object so they're both Mm -hmm. looking at the object but they're they're kind of controlling what you're even able to see when you look at the object and terministic screens do the same thing um it reminds me of nothing so much as hans georg gadamer um Mm -hmm. who who talks about our prejudices determining the way we're able to think and and he he kind of tries to rescue that word prejudice from from its unfortunate social context because he doesn't mean prejudice is a bad thing what he means is you come to the world with a certain worldview and mm. uh and and you're only able to see things through that lens at least until you add another one or another one or another one and uh burke actually uses that world word worldview and he uses it in in, in not the aggravating apologetics 101 way where there's oh there's seven major worldviews and uh, no it's it's a, a worldview is an intensely personal thing i think burke says there's as many worldviews as there are people and that that seems mm. right to me and godamarian mm-hmm Nathan, you're a bigger Gautamer fan than I am. Did you did you see Gautamer when you were reading this? <laughs> yeah, you've read just as much Gautamer as I have because you and I read through uh, Truth and Method together a couple summers ago, and that's uh, all the Gautamer I've read. Then I've actually read more Gautamer than you. Oh, have. well, there you go, there you go. One thing I would say is that you know his uh, Burke's, I mean, not Gautamer's. Burke's main concern with scientism in this essay seems to be the phenomenon that he sees going on in his day, and I would argue is going on with a vengeance here in the 21st century, of people bringing the scientific mode of language, in other words, everything is description, and trying to bring it across to realms of life that really don't readily give themselves to that kind of language. Uh, so, I mean, the, the best examples I can think of are two. Uh, one is the way that the new atheists tend to talk about Christianity namely as an inadequate descriptive system. You know, I mean, we used to need Christianity because we didn't know about particle physics, you know, to which, you know, Kenneth Burke and I would say, well, you're kind of missing the point of Christianity there. You know, the <laughs> the the main purpose was not to describe the world, uh, but to live well in the world. Uh, and then the other example that I have is the, uh, some of the weird... Uh, 
ethical theories that arise, I mean, in the sort of heyday of analytical philosophy, uh, where every ethical utterance should be translated into a descriptive statement. So if I say, you shouldn't do that, then, you know, the properly philosophical way to render that would be, I have a feeling that you shouldn't do that. The, the CLC, it's CL Stevenson who, who makes that really popular, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you for conjuring that name. I had forgotten it. Uh, and so, I mean, you know, Burke doesn't have anything against science. And like I said, I mean, he writes glowingly about Charles Darwin in his big book, The Grammar of Motives. Uh, but he is concerned that people are simply stretching that kind of language farther than where it can do useful work. Danny, is yeah. there anything else you'd tag onto that? Well, I mean, the term, one of the phrases he kind of uses, and he derives this from an interesting story about dueling. <laughs> um, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, which is, uh, this is one of his idiosyncras- idiosyncrasies as a writer. He's just so... Uh, seemingly kind of random and uh, and 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 creative in in weird ways as a, as a critic, um, but the term the, the phrase that he's using is directing the attention, and I think that that uh, is only possible with a quote unquote dramatistic view of language because uh, what you're doing then is. Um, uh, acknowledging the fact that language has a purpose. That's one of the, the five things you, you were talking about, you, you introduced at the beginning of the episode. And so when you have a purpose uh, and, and the scene is set for your act of uh, persuasion or whatnot, uh, then you have to then, and to achieve that purpose, direct the person's, the, the, the hearer's attention to what you want to actually focus on. And uh, what's interesting about this essay is that that sort of kind of draws boundaries upon what you can say, um, even. Mm-hmm. And so um, you're not only, it's not screened strictly as a filter that where certain things appear to you, it's screened as if you're screening off other things. You're actually uh, uh, directing attention away from other aspects of, of, a, of a subject as well. And, uh, and I think that that's one of the, uh, the more... Uh, you know, complex aspects of this, of this essay. What's interesting to me about Burke is exactly what's interesting to me about the, the Gautamer that I've been talking about, which is that he is charting a middle ground between utter subjectivity and the kind of naive objectivity that is uh, presupposed by scientism. Right. Precisely. You are looking at an object that you can describe falsely. Right. I mean, if you think about this, Mm -hmm. this metaphor of the of the color screens, I mean, if if you're looking at a flower and you describe it as the Chrysler building, you've got it wrong. (laughs) But (laughs) at at the same time, um, depending on what screen you're viewing it through, there's multiple correct ways to describe it, which, you know, as someone who teaches literature, that is that is how I tend to view the world, because that's what makes a classroom run properly. Right, there, right. You, you can have these multiple interpretations that that all kind of work, but there are also wrong interpretations. Right, and we should also note that Burke isn't the only one doing this in the the early to mid twentieth century. I mean, if you look at the philosophy of Ludwig Wittgenstein, Martin Heidegger, a lot of folks doing philosophy in that era. I mean, Gadamer that you know Michael just named. A lot of folks in that mid twentieth century range are doing this kind of work. Yeah, and Michael, when you said something about the making a classroom 
function properly. Uh, a proper, I mean, I was thinking, what does that even mean? But uh, uh, the, for me, the proper use of a classroom is to give students a space to be active, right? And, right. and to be and to be active then is to sort of make decisions about things. And therefore, I think that it um, you can make decisions based on flawed logic or whatnot, right? Um, but and that's where we do avoid kind of the, the, the trappings. It's possible to avoid the trappings of um, just chaos. <laughs> if, 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 I can, if I can go on a little pedagogical uh, side spree here, I, I would say what happens is they come in with their own set of screens. And again, because worldviews are different for everybody and because if Gottimer is right, you're kind of composed of a series of prejudices, a, a series of commitments, let's say, might be a better way to say it. Mm-hmm. And, and all of my students share a, a couple of those commitments because I teach at a Christian college, but they all have a, another set, too, that go on top of them. And so they all come in with these different screens, and they look at the same object, and in in, in arguing about it in class, they are hopefully able to ex- to add screens to one another to expand those prejudices and allow them to will allow one another to see uh to see the object the the literary text in question in in a new light that that is that that, that when i say the classroom working properly that's what i'm talking about mm-hmm. well michael um i'm sorry nathan uh yeah <laughs> uh, when when Bert, another thing uh that he that's important to burke's philosophy of language is the idea of motives uh what Burke refers to as motives plays a huge role not only in this essay but in his work as a whole. Uh, what does he mean by that term, and how is he using it here to explain deterministic screen? When Burke talks about motives, he's talking about something similar to what Aristotle means when he talks about causes. Uh, these are things that make things happen in the world. So for Aristotle, you've got things like the material cause, what a thing's made of, the formal cause, what a thing. Uh, what shape a thing takes, if you will, efficient cause, what motion prior to the act makes the motion happen, so on and so forth. And then, of course, the final cause. I shouldn't leave that out there. If if I've got three, I might as well do four. Uh, The thing towards which things move. For Burke, the motives play a similar role. Uh, And for Burke, again, you know, unlike Aristotle, who's trying to sort of craft the single valid philosophy... Burke is a lot more interested in pluralism in thought. So he's interested in seeing, okay, what is it, uh, what differences in motives make, for instance, a Marxist different from a Roman Catholic? What sorts of motives make a Skinnerian behaviorist, uh, who wouldn't have existed yet, sorry, uh, different from, (laughs) uh, trying to think of someone who actually would have existed at that point, different from a Hegelian, okay? What he discovers, and again, uh, this comes across you know, at, at much greater length in the grammar of motives and the rhetoric of motives, but in this essay, what happens is the motives that you emphasize, the motives that you marginalize, and the motives that you rule out entirely tend to give you these terministic screens. So to give an example, someone who is a uh, scientistic thinker, to use that rather awkward tongue twister of a term, Uh, A scientistic thinker is going to say that ultimately things do not have a purpose motive in the natural world. Uh, So, you know, to talk about nature as, you know, wanting to sustain itself is a categorical error. To talk about nature as wanting to live in harmony is a categorical error. Now, Burke is going to say that, you know, within that system, 
operating inside of that screen, those are valid um, prohibitions to utter, uh, but that ultimately that's the uh, that's not the only possible screen. So therefore, when we talk about differences between a materialist, determinist, you know, biology type, and a Roman Catholic who's going to emphasize, you know, the will and, you know, either the fallenness or the re- redemption of the will and the, you know, potential for goodness in the will. Uh, the difference there is that the Roman Catholic is operating from a strongly purposive framework or a strongly purposive terministic screen and therefore will make assertions that are not simply wrong for the materialist determinist, but ultimately are nonsense. So what Burke is interested in is the fact that, again, in the 20th century when he's operating, you've got these systems of thought that are not only disagreeing with each other and not merely disagreeing with each other, but really don't even make sense to each other. Right. And that's why terministic screens become so important. You, you have this notion that reason is always grounded in a particular interpretive community. Mm-hmm. So, so what counts as reason for one group of people is not going to count as reason for another, which is, right, I right. mean, to, to invoke your favorite uh, name, that's, that's Alistair McIntyre, right? Oh, yeah. Amen. And our, uh, our listeners can go ahead and take a shot. absolutely absolutely and uh, and you know and i I realize i'm kind of repeating myself with you know slight variations but again this is where you know burke and wittgenstein and heidegger and others are departing from a lot of 19th century and early 20th century philosophy that tend to say that there is reason and then there is defective reason and those are only two the only two possibilities Cats like Gadamer and Burke and Richard Weaver and Ludwig Wittgenstein are going to say, well, what you've got is not, you know, logic and then defective logic, but you've got different systems of logic. In other words, the starting points, you know, in a philosophical discourse matter just as much as the validity or invalidity of the moves that you make within the system. I guess the the question I have about this then, and I, we'll talk more about relativism uh, yeah, later on. Yeah, don't steal too much, my thunder. No, but <laughs> like, in, going back to what you talked about about the at the beginning of this. By the way, I'm very much in awe of you right now. That was that was an amazing explanation. Of, oh, thank you, thank uh, of, you. Of motives, um, but <laughs> going back to the beginning when you were talking about the the roots of this way of thinking of Burke's thought being in the, the time of World War II. Um, mm-hmm. So how does one then? Uh, like determine justice and that sort of thing? Well, the answer is that you, I mean, Burke, I mean, it seems to me, and again, I've not read his entire corpus, so listeners, if you've read more than I have, by all means, write in and let me know. Uh, But he seems fairly convinced by something like John Locke's notion of toleration. In other words, uh, you refrain from killing people who disagree with you, Uh, Not because you're both right, but because one of you probably has a better idea. And if you wait long enough without killing each other, then eventually one of you is going to convince the other. It's like my pedagogy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And and this is where, you know, I mean, listeners, I know I I sometimes throw you a curveball and start singing the praise of Enlightenment thinkers. I think John Locke's basically got it right. (laughs) I think it's better not to kill people you disagree with. The problem is, isn't isn't toleration another one of those terms that's only going to be defined able to be defined within a community? 
Oh, it is, and that's why I said I agree with John Locke's notion of toleration. <laughs> okay. Well, Michael, one of uh, Burke's many idiosyncrasies is his extensive use of kind of somewhat odd examples to describe his concepts, uh, which he I mean, thankfully does because uh, it gives you something to ground them in. But can you pick one particular one that you think explains deterministic screen well and walk us through uh, his application of rhetorical theory to an actual practice? Sure. Uh, he says that terministic screens typically involve uh, two principles, continuity, saying two things are belong in the same category, and discontinuity, they don't belong in the same category. And his example here is uh, is Darwin, whom, as, mm-hmm. uh, as Nathan mentioned, he clearly admires uh, as, as a writer and as a thinker, but he says Darwin's big problem is he, he, he decides, he, he, he decides that Man is con- con- continuous, I guess is the way to say that. I was going to say continuous, but that's not right. Um, <laughs> man is continuous with lower animals. In, in fact, even saying lower animals suggests uh, discontinuity in some way. He's, he, man is, is continuous with other animals, um, and, and he can't even conceive of the notion that man is discontinuous with those other animals by, by way of his... Uh, symbol using his his language mm-hmm. and and so burke says this this forces darwin into a particular view of anthropology that he he finds faulty because he he doesn't really have much of a space to talk about language which would make human beings discontinuous with animals and and thus um i don't want to say bring the whole system to a crashing halt of of course it wouldn't but it would it would require him to expand his uh, his system in a way that Darwin is not interested in in doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so so this this demonstrates the way that the 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 way you conceive of continuity and discontinuity when you go into looking at the world uh, determines what you're able to see and what you're not able to see. That was mm-hmm. that was the example I found most interesting. He has uh, several others talks about um, if you go to a psychiatrist and tell him your dreams, uh, the, the, the psychiatric school he comes from is going to determine what he says about your dreams. If he's a Freudian, he'll say one thing. If he's an Adlerian, he'll say another. If he's a Jungian, he'll say another. If he's a Christian um, counselor, he'll say another. Right, right. He'll, yeah. tell, you, he'll tell you that your, uh, your, your brothers and sisters will all kneel down before you. <laughs> and your father and mother will kneel down before you and that's before. nice that's nice but yeah so so and and to say any of those are wrong is is begging the question is that an appropriate use of that term it's it's assuming that that you've already arrived at the master terministic screen the, the screen that's not terministic or no right right the, the or terministic the, or the terminology that's not, that's not a screen right. yeah there you go Right. It's interesting. I wonder if this is the era in philosophy where the where begging the question becomes a formulation. I didn't research that for the episode because until you just now said it, that didn't occur to hmm. me. Hmm. Are, are there any of these examples that interest you guys? Danny, won't you go ahead? Michael grabbed onto the one that I well, paid most I, attention to. 
<laughs> Mostly the way he kind of brings them in is interesting to me. And, and so there's this one example where he, he's contrasting uh, John Watson, which is a funny name, I think, in uh, current uh, <laughs> uses, but uh, with uh, Augustine and, and someone named Bowlby. And what's interesting about it is the way that he talks about the kind of the different screens that they use to uh, address a particular topic. But as he the way he describes it to me is interesting. He says, at the time I read Bowlby's paper, I happened to be doing a monograph on, quote, verbal action in St. Augustine's uh, confession. And I was struck by the fact that Augustine's term, blah, blah, blah. And it's almost like he's unable, uh, he's infatuated with his own idea. And so he's interrogating his <laughs> his own uh, terministic screen in how that influences the way he examines other people's terministic screens. And, and I felt like that's like a level of where the kind of uh, the fourth wall disappears. And what one of the places <laughs> that makes Burke's writing in general, mm-hmm. I keep using the word idiosyncratic, but, but very odd in terms of academic style. And, and, and I just mm-hmm. find that to be um, a, a fascinating moment in history where you're trying to sort of make something uh, in, in academic history, in critical history, when you're trying to make something kind of immediate and applicable to a particular like contemporary moment a, instead of uh, writing for the ages. And, and, and I feel like mm-hmm. that, that that's one thing that he does. I, it, it, it's, it's so risky when you think about the way that he, and it's a kind of amazing to me that he was influential at all because he's such an oddball in so many ways. It's certainly risky if you're holding that scientific view of language where it's the simple naming or describing. Oh, because, sure, Because sure. He's, he's essentially admitting his subjectivity here. Although the, mm-hmm. the experience he describes is an experience anyone who's ever taught knows exactly about. You, you, uh, you're, you're teaching one text in one class and you're teaching another in another class that has nothing to do with it, and yet somehow they, they form this mystical connection. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And I mean, especially, I mean, it rings true with my experience because I do teach at a small college. So I teach a broad spectrum of things uh, that I don't expect to relate to each other, but they do. Yeah, it's it's actually kind of a case for people teaching more classes than yeah. one or two a semester. Although I would hate to make that case because I would love to be down to one or two a semester. <laughs> <laughs> That's your own terministic screen, though, isn't it? So, well, yeah, it's my um, own self-interest, <laughs> my, na- my naked self-interest. <laughs> well, Nathan, um, here, here's where I'll, I'll set you loose a little bit. Uh, Burke uh-huh. devotes an entire section of this essay to buttress against what he calls mere relativism. Uh, what does he mean? Why does he do this? And how is the effort related to other Chicago school critics? I, what we haven't mentioned, he was, a, he was a University of Chicago sort of person. Yeah, yeah, and and... The problem that that Burke recognizes with this way of looking at things is that it threatens an infinite regress. You know, I mean, when you examine someone else's terministic screen, you're doing so through your own terministic screen. And then if someone criticizes your critique of someone else's terministic screen, they'll analyze your terministic screen through which you read their terministic screen and so on ad infinitum. And he says, well, ultimately, you know, is there no place that we can go, you know, some sort of Archimedean point? Uh, where we can actually get some leverage on this thing. And where he it ends up going with this uh, is the idea of, well, I mean, he, he basically returns to dramatism, right? Uh, and he says that, you know, what he's kind of interested in, and, and I read this as a fairly conservative move, 
uh, is to ask, you know, when people aren't doing academic philosophy or academic criticism, uh, what sorts of terministic screens do human communities tend to employ? So, for instance, he says that, you know, you could use the terministic screen that rules out purpose, uh, but then ultimately you are dismissing gigantic hunks of the legal tradition, the ethical tradition, the religious tradition, so on and so forth. And even though Burke himself, I mean, I've seen him in sort of, you know, uh, dust or, uh, yeah, dust jacket biographies uh, named as an agnostic writer, uh, he still has enough of a respect for those long human traditions uh, that he wants to root his judgments in those traditions and say that, yes, ultimately you could use any sort of terministic screen that's possible within this, you know, vastly capacious uh, mode of dramatism. But ultimately, some of them have been more conducive to human community than others. Um, and, and Michael, I realize I'm deviating from his terminology here. I mean, are there any phrases from this section that you think our, our listeners ought to hear? Not that I can think of. I, I, I found this rather unconvincing. I, I, I feel uh-huh. like he stepped up uh, up to the line of uh, what we might call conservative postmodernism and then uh-huh. couldn't take the final step. <laughs> he, he kind of deconstructs everybody's master narratives, right, uh-huh. and, and then says, oh, but my master narrative, this dramatistic one, that's the one that explains all the other ones. And, and you know, it's, he's writing in the 40s. I'm not sure the, the – it was in the air yet to take the final step. Right, right. But, uh, I shouldn't even call it the final step because that also suggests a master narrative. To, t- to, take the, to take the next step, there's always a next one after it. Right, you uh, Aristotelian, you. Right. So I, I uh, that that was that was the uh, that was the issue I had with him. I was I was un- uh-huh. I, I was I was with him. Uh, I was very excitedly with him for most of this essay when we came to section five, our attempt to avoid mere relativism. I uh, I, I I didn't buy it. Right, and and with regards to other Chicago school critics, obviously the one that I know best is Richard Weaver, and he actually devotes an essay to the topic of relativism. And what might surprise folks who like to throw around, you know, the title "Ideas Have Consequences" without actually reading it—that's um, <laughs> me, by the way. I'm, not, I'm, not that anyone I'm, does that, but <laughs> I, I'm just kidding. <laughs> now, Danny, you say ideas have no consequences. That's yeah, right. Nothing means, yeah. <laughs> I'm all but, about uh, relativism. You know, Richard Weaver in that essay on relativism actually says that there's not enough relativism in the mid-20th century when he's operating. Instead, people regard the big stories of liberal progress and capitalism and such as ultimate, uh, and they don't regard them as simply one way to make sense of existence among others. Uh, so, so it's really, I mean, fascinating to me that, you know, Richard Weaver, who often gets hold, held up by academic rhetoric scholars as the absolutist boogeyman and gets held up by, frankly, I mean, right-wing internet pundits as, you know, the great, you know, intellectual of the conservative movement, uh, was actually writing there in the, and I can't remember what year his relativism essay was published, but I'll say either the 40s or 50s, uh, saying that we don't have enough relativism, can we have some more, please? I also think that um, uh, with Burke, you can't necessarily – you know more about Weaver than I do. But he was also, I mean, central to a um, uh, a group of literary critics working in Chicago at that time. Also out of that school came Wayne Booth, uh, who had this oh, – yeah. uh, 
uh, massive uh, influence um, based on this kind of Chicago school um, Aristotelian commitment. And in fact, Burke uh, named a group of literary scholars from Chicago the Neo-Aristotelians. And yeah, somewhat, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> they're somewhat lost to literary and critical history. And I think it's unfortunate um, because a lot of what we're talking about, you can sort of see um, as activating their kind of literary project. I'm talking about people like R.S. Crane, um, and uh, Elder Olson, and there this whole school of of, uh, of critics uh, that were pointedly resisting the assumptions of the new critics and the new criticism and the kind of what they what they refer to as the the monism of uh, the way that they would sort of read a text as meaning a single thing that could be deciphered, uh, and I think that. You could apply Burke's terms of scientist, scientific uh, rhetoric to the way that they were characterizing the new critical project. And, oh, absolutely, and so, yeah. And they were interested in um, this more pluralistic view uh, based on kind of an Aristotelian philosophy of looking at a particular instance of something. And, and so the dramatism uh, that Burke uh, introduces here and the terministic screen itself is, I think, something that applies to the, the, the critical work of that Chicago school of criticism. Now, I think one of the reasons they probably have been lost to history is that um, it, it's uh, – it's not really a codified school. Um, there's not like a set of processes to follow in doing this. It's just like sort of a call for this kind of relativism um, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and or pluralism is what they would say at the time. And, and right, so, right. Um, and I feel like that uh, that context uh, really situates um, Burke within that kind of Chicago school moment and talk about a scene um, uh, like uh, the, the scene of all these people working together and, and sort of having this kind of uh, shared approach to uh, approaching language and literature. Uh, I, I just I think of how exciting that must have been. Well, Michael, uh, Burke includes a poem in this essay to make his point, if you can believe such a thing. And that doesn't seem normal. Uh, talk about the poem and speculate what on earth he's trying to do with it and should all critics do something like this? No. <laughs> no, no, they shouldn't. Uh, made, made me think of Emerson. You know, Emerson's always beginning his essays with a semi-related poem that he wrote at another time, which is exactly what this is, right? Uh, Burke, Burke did not write this poem specifically for this essay. He says it was his from his volume of poems, Book of Moments. I had no idea he even wrote poetry. <laughs> Frankly, mm-hmm. Mr. Shankly. The poem is is addressed to the Logos, which, you know, he's not talking about Christ here. He's talking what I would see about the ultimate terms for his particular rhetoric. And he, he, is, he is asking for clarity within this kind of dialectic, right? So, so clarity within the back and forth movement that, that characterizes rhetoric um and he's asking for moderation he says may we have neither the mania of the one nor the delirium of the many but both the unity and diversity the title and the manifold details that arise as that title is restated in the narrative of history and and i mean that 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 is kind of what he's talking about here may we may we look at our various terministic screens and see if we can bring them together in some way that is that is helpful And, and he um he he talks about moving backwards or up, if you prefer to think of it that way, um, uh, above each individual term until we get to 
thy vast almighty title the the grand <laughs> the grand the great synecdoche uh and the grand tautology the the synecdoche being a uh, he has it up here let me go look at it instead of attempt i i can never remember synecdoche it's a part for the whole and a tautology is uh you know a equals a mm-hmm. um so so the, the 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 name itself becomes a, a, a part of a of a larger whole of of the being that it names I suppose and a tautology, uh, the the works of this uh, great synecdoche. I don't know. I uh, I must admit I did not read the poem until I saw that you were making me talk about it. So so I, I never read Emerson's either. I don't know. I don't know what that says about me. Well, Nathan, what about you? Well, I mean, I, I love the fact that it is, you know, in the form of an ode or even a hymn. Uh, you know, Dialect, it is this the, uh, dialectician's hymn is the name of it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And see, I didn't even see that. Okay. Now that you point that up, yeah. Uh, so I mean, it is, you know, in a very, very straightforward sense, uh, a sort of play on the hymn to the Logos from the Gospel of John, chapter one. Um, Except in this case, you know, of course, like Michael said, you know, it is logos in the sense of the speech act. Uh, so, you know, it's it, it it has all these elements that I mean I recognize as you know structures from the Book of Common Prayer. I mean, it's I, I have a hard time though. I mean, because of the uh, the well, because of the fact that Burke's crazy, as Danny is always telling me. <laughs> And as the I don't album know. art for this uh, episode will demonstrate, I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I have a hard time deciding whether he's got his tongue in his cheek or not. Danny, what do you think? Well, um, first of all, I just have to read just a few lines from it. Um, Hail to thee, Logos, thou vast almighty title, in whose name we conjure our acts, that the partial representatives of thy whole act. And uh, may we be thy delegates. It's just, it's, it's, I feel it's very tongue in cheek on some level because it's so, uh, I don't know, classical in its kind of uh, uh-huh. you know, tone. But I, I think that the moment that it appears in the essay is, is worth considering. Uh, at the end of that uh, uh, diatribe about relativism, um, he talks about the end of any drama is sort of tragedy, right? Uh, in the, in Aristotelian sort of sense. Right. And so, uh, he, he wants to obviously avoid the victimage he calls of, of that comes out of conflict. Um, and so, uh, he says, dramatism is always on the edge of this vexing problem that comes to a culmination in tragedy, the song of the scapegoat. And then there's a happy route, he says, uh, along the platonic dialogue. And so, um, <laughs> it's like this, poem is meant to do the argumentation of the of dramatism by just enacting it and, and somehow transcending the the conf- I don't know the, the the unavoidable conflict that comes out of argument, and, and I feel like this little moment of, of transcendence, uh, like trying to escape the deterministic screen, the the subject of the, that he's subjecting us to with the essay here. Um, I feel like that's such a, a an amazingly sort of creative and free moment, that, and you just I have never seen anything like that in any <laughs> sort of critical work that I've read, and, and I find it to be. Um, 
a nice apology for literature on, on many way, uh, in, in many ways is that uh, the point of literature is to escape the kind of petty conflicts that exist. Uh, I mean, this is Matthew Arnold's Dover Beach, right? Uh, and the, the ignorant armies uh, clashing by night down on the, on, the, on the shore while my love and I are up here just above it all. And I feel like the poem that he gives us here is that little moment to sort of transcend the conflicts that come out of uh, dramatism and, and just sort of reflect on it. And so, right. Although he's not above the fray, because I mean, one of the stanzas begins, "May we compete with one another to speak for Thy creation with more justice." Right. So it's interesting. I mean, you know, and what occurred to me as you were talking, Danny, is that he is doing precisely what he proposes should be done in the beginning of the essay to escape this strictly descriptive mode of writing. Yes. And to do some hortatory. Yes. It's sort of like it's like a meta moment in the essay where yeah. uh, where the the joining in the fray is somehow transcending the fray at the same time, and then he's sort of uh, demonstrating the the philosophy, if you will, that he's just been arguing for uh, in in a in a form that makes the application of that argument. Uh, impossible somehow the 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 work of art and this is not great art by any definition of the term no. uh, but but the but through which the the work of art is able to sort of transcend and so yeah I, I do see it as this sort of almost uh, it's it predates postmodernism but it very you know, it feels like a postmodern uh, piece of criticism but yeah. again but again postmodern in the sense of Paul Ricoeur and and Gadamer, not in the sense of Derrida right right. I mean, uh, aesthetically, postmodern more than anything else here. Mm-hmm. Well, Nathan, um, I seem to like to end these things. Speaking about like uh, uh, you know meta uh, reflections, I'm reflecting mm-hmm. on my own practice when I host these shows. Uh, I seem to like to end these things with a little speculation about the subject at hand and how it might impact Christian intellectual activity. Can you pick a particular aspect? or application of this essay and recommend it for thinking people of faith. And when you've had your say, uh, just yield it to Michael. I've actually got a couple angles I'd like to take. One of them is that, you know, Kenneth Burke is always a good friend to me when I'm thinking about how to teach writing. And honestly, people like Kenneth Burke and Richard Weaver have really transformed it to me. And I mean, this message largely goes out to those of our listeners who are in grad school in the humanities Read people like Burke and Weaver because they will get you excited about teaching those core classes when the drudgery of doing another one this semester threatens to overwhelm you. Uh, These kinds of ideas like the direction of attention. I mean, I've used that as a framework for talking about the genre of the essay for a number of years now. Uh, I didn't use that phrase because I hadn't read this particular essay, but the idea that, you know, every subject and verb that you use in an essay directs your reader's attention somewhere rather than somewhere else, and you as the writer need to be intentional about that. That's the sort of thing that makes a freshman writing class fun for me to teach. On a you know more specialized, rarefied um, academy at large level, I think that Kenneth Burke is good medicine in a moment, uh, and I'm going to shift to biblical studies here just because I see this happening a lot more in biblical studies than in other fields where there are people like, and I'm going to go ahead and name names, Peter Enns and Bart Ehrman, looking at certain modes of biblical scholarship and saying those are not academic. I think that Burke is a handy reminder that there are certain ways to direct the attention that are still intellectual activity 
And as far as I'm concerned, we should treat as intellectual activity as part of the competition for the attention of our fellow readers. Uh, And ultimately, I think that's a healthier way to look at radically different modes of doing scholarship than it is simply to point at them and say, not academic. And of course, Pete Enns and, you know, Bart Ehrman aren't the only ones who do that. Um, You know, certainly someone like David Horowitz on the right wing does that, Uh, you know, but it's one of those tendencies that I always find troubling. And I think Burke articulates nicely why I find it so troubling. So, Michael, here's your lateral. Take the ball. He talks about, uh, this is in section four, right at the end. Uh, This is the discussion that leads him into his repudiation of relativism or his buttress against relativism, I guess, as Danny said. Um, He says that all the disciplines have specialized language that makes it very difficult for them to talk outside of their particular field. Mm -hmm. Um, And that philosophy, in in as much as it deals with man in general, is, is... is the master discipline. Now, I'm not sure I agree that philosophy deals entirely with man in general. Um, <laughs> that, that That's a troubling term for an existentialist. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think it, I think it might be a good thing to remember as people working in other disciplines that philosophy may be able to give us a broader perspective on whatever we're talking about, specifically because it involves bringing in this, I, again, I hesitate to say higher, but at least outside voice that sees things in a way that maybe we don't. Well, I, I have a, a a little example of how this came in handy to me <laughs> in, in the classroom recently. I had a student uh, come up to me with that kind of question that I think a Christian college English professor maybe always fears in the back of their mind. Like, how old do you think the earth is? This sort, which I, I kind of... <laughs> I kind of take as a a political sort of question, and I'm, I'm very um, reticent to inject my own kind of personal opinions about political questions into the classroom, just because I don't want to impose my own terministic screen on uh, on a student. Uh, and so, my I kind of deferred to Burke. I actually explained this concept uh, to this student, and, and I said, "Well, what's at stake rhetorically?" when we start raising that question in a classroom. And she asked me because she was very offended by the answer she was given by a, a particular professor. And, and I'll leave that as vague as I possibly can there. Um, leave it to your <laughs> imagination. But, uh, um, and uh, uh, so she was offended by the assertion in that classroom that conflicted with the way she uh, understands the world. And, and so I, I use that as a moment to talk about uh, Terministic screens and how what we emphasize and what we de-emphasize kind of necessitates the conclusions we can come to, and the way that we bring up certain topics, even uh, like create a, a schism between uh, religion and, and certain uh, uh, scientists, and, and so certain religion uh, religious thinkers and certain scientists. And so I actually used it as a kind of little meta moment to examine the way that we uh, 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 are kind of driven by our own biases uh, without, and so this is, I mean, you could say this was passive aggressive and me shirking any kind of ethical responsibility. And I, I wouldn't argue with that, but I, it's just sort of a, <laughs> a, a, a philosophy of mine. But, uh, and so I, I do think that being aware of our biases as, as you're talking about with Gadamer and, and with, uh, 
Burke as well here, is a powerful like little ethical moment and, and sort of understanding that the ideas and the words we use do sort of have, uh, they create the conflict that we engage in. And, and so I feel like uh, on that level, this is a really uh, important concept to consider. Well, um, thank you everybody for uh, listening. Uh, do we have any idea, Nathan, what's on tap for next week? Yes, next week, first of all, uh, may or may not be the return of David Grubbs. He's kind of a Schrodinger's cat for us right now. Uh, But whether we have David or whether we have Danny, uh, we're going to be talking about Stanley Hauerwas's 1991 essay, Honor in the University. Uh, I'll try to put a link to that up on the Facebook page so our listeners can have a gander uh, before we take it on on the episode. But that's what we're going to be talking about. That sounds great. I really appreciate uh, anytime you guys let me uh, come on board. I enjoyed this conversation today. I've been sort of stewing over this essay for a long time, and uh, your insights are always uh, – I love you guys. Let me just say oh, that. Oh, thanks, Danny. <laughs> we love you too. Now, can I ask an impolitic question? When can we expect uh, the debut of the Sectarian Review? I... <laughs> <laughs> well, let's think of what Burke would say. Uh, but, um... <laughs> I must apologize. That has been uh, on my agenda. There has been, uh, I've had a lot to kind of uh, juggle this year in unexpected ways. And so uh, I am hoping, I've been sort of writing up, I wrote up a uh, a few months ago, actually, a little sketch for what the show might look like. And you can expect in the next couple of weeks, a little call for contributors to be put up on the um, uh, Christian Humanist uh, website, Facebook page. And, and I would very much like people who are interested in doing kind of a, uh, a little partisan review style of cultural criticism. Uh, from a number of disciplines to uh, participate in this. So if uh, any listeners out there, sounds like something that would, they would be interested in, uh, be looking for that. And uh, it should happen sooner rather than later. Wonderful. How's that? Very good. Well, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our intern is Zach Schmidt. Our press liaison is Chris Philbick. For Nathan Gilmore and Michael Farmer, this is Danny Anderson saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.